0: Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 23, The First Thanksgiving. Remember that this podcast relies on listener support. If you want to support the show, then why not consider signing up for membership, giving you access to our series on Aztec history. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. As we enter April 1621... We lose Bradford's detailed account, meaning that we have much less information to work with. You'll probably notice this in the pace of the narrative. So, let's just dive into the first spring at Plymouth. The first thing the Pilgrims had to deal with was the Mayflower. The ship wasn't supposed to stay around in the New World this long. It had been there around five months by this point. The captain didn't want to still be there... He hadn't really been able to argue for leaving, though. It had taken some time for a site suitable for settlements to be found, and then, once that was done, houses had to be constructed, and then there was an issue with the fire. By the time it was possible for the colonists to leave the ship and live in Plymouth itself, the sickness was well underway, and it wasn't possible for the ship to just abandon them. They needed the refuge and the extra help the crew could provide, since there was no guarantee that the pilgrims wouldn't all fall ill. But now it was spring, conditions were improving, the health of the colonists and the crew returned. On April 5th, the captain felt ready to leave, and the Mayflower set sail on her 31-day voyage back to England. While she would return to the New World, She would never go back to Plymouth. It must have been a sad and terrifying sight for those left behind, watching the little ship go over the horizon. That ship was their one way to communicate with the outside world, with the old world, with the only world they knew. They had no idea when they would next see a friendly face. Plus, you have to disregard hindsight in situations like these. We now know that Plymouth would be highly successful, but in 1621 there was no way to guarantee that. The only other English colony to have survived on the mainland of North America was Jamestown, and that was about to fall victim to the 1622 Powhatan Uprising we covered way back in episode 12. Who was to say whether or not Plymouth would be a Jamestown? or a Roanoke. Certainly, no one at the time knew. All they could do was try to prepare for the future as best they could. This involved planting crops. Some they tried planting by themselves. They had taken some English wheat and some peas, but both of these failed to grow. The pilgrims themselves weren't sure why, wondering whether they had some bad seeds, or if they had planted their crops in the wrong season. But luckily, they weren't on their own. You'll recall that last time I introduced Squanto, a Pautuxet, whom Somerset brought to Plymouth. It is estimated that 95% of the Pautuxet tribe, which had lived at Plymouth just a few years previously, had died from plague. So it is possible that Squanto was looking to resettle, which would explain why he moved to Plymouth to live with the pilgrims. Squanto was invaluable to the pilgrims. Maize would be the staple crop of the pilgrim diet, and Squanto was able to teach them how to grow it. He showed them an area of good land, about 20 acres, on which they could grow their crops, and told them that the correct time to plant it was when the oak leaves were as big as the ears of a mouse. This time would soon arrive, so the pilgrims needed to begin preparing the land. The land had to be broken up with a hoe. They lacked animals for a plough. He also told them how to fertilise the land. They would have to dig holes and bury alewives, a type of small fish, in them. Disaster struck the colony in April, when their governor, John Carver, suddenly died. He had worked Extremely hard, leading by example during the voyage, during construction in the winter, and now farming in the spring. He collapsed on a hot day and just didn't recover. Bradford was elected as his replacement, even though he was ill at the time, which shows his standing within the community. He was given an assistant, Isaac Allison, to help him while he recovered, although this became a feature. Of the Plymouth Constitution. Essentially, these two were the government, although they consulted with the other leading men, such as Brewster. This was modified in 1624. From this date, there would be a governor and five assistants, sometimes referred to as magistrates, forming something like an executive council in which the governor had a double vote. This strikes me instantly of the board of councillors in Jamestown, with the president, who had a double vote. The difference, though, between Jamestown and Plymouth, was that the executive council in Plymouth was almost completely powerless. One of the recurring themes of American political culture is the dislike of a powerful executive branch, the most obvious example of this is found in the Constitution. While the presidency is often considered the most powerful branch of American government, particularly, I've noticed, by non Americans, this is not what the Founding Fathers wanted at all. They deliberately made Article 1 of the Constitution about the legislative branch, Congress. I don't need to go into any more detail here, because we'll obviously have a ton to say about constitutional theory when we get to the revolution, but it's interesting to note that this quirk was present in America from the get-go. It was the job of the governor to enforce the will of the people, and to occasionally act as a judge, but whenever he and the other magistrates did so, appeals could be made to the people. There are a couple of examples of this from 1621, but my favourite is where a duel was fought, and the pilgrims wouldn't have any of that nonsense. The two were sentenced to be tied together by their heads and feet for 24 hours without food or water. The two didn't even make it an hour before they were begging for pardon, which was duly granted. It worked. This was the last duel fought in the old colony. As time passed, life got on with its business. On May 12th, the first marriage at Plymouth took place between Edward Winslow and Susanna White, both of whom were widowed as their spouses had died in the sickness earlier that year. The pilgrims took a very Dutch, Calvinist approach to marriage, and they believed that marriage was a strictly civil affair, to be conducted before a magistrate rather than a clergyman. This may have been partly down to the fact they didn't have a clergyman in their colony. The closest thing they had was Elder Brewster, but he had been a lay officer within the church, not a clergyman. It is also noticeable to have widowers getting remarried in this period. Such a thing would have been scandalous in the old world, the very height of impropriety. Yet, in such a small community, this was highly desired. This brings us into summer. The newly married Winslow, along with Stephen Hopkins and Squanto, went on an expedition to visit Massasoit. The date is debated. Bradford writes that it began on July 2nd, while Winslow writes that it began a few weeks earlier, on June 10th. Since June 10th, 1621, was a Sunday, I find Bradford's date more believable than Winslow's, given how strict the Puritans were about the Sabbath. You'll recall one of their principal complaints about the Dutch was that while they were Calvinist and kept the Sabbath, they were too cheery about it. Therefore, it seems a bit odd that they'd send an embassy on a Sunday. They headed into the interior, and the first place they found was the town of Namasket, where several of the natives attached themselves to this little group. Bradford doesn't paint a pleasant picture of the journey, writing that the countryside was filled with bones of dead Indians following the plague. About 40 miles west of Plymouth, they found the land of the Wampangawags, Massasoit tribe. It comprised of the modern Bristol county in Rhode Island, as well as bits of Massachusetts. They met with Massasoit, and said that since his people often visited Plymouth, they hoped that they would likewise be allowed to visit him. They gave him a gift of a coat, and asked that the friendship between their peoples continue. They also exchanged corn, so that the settlers would be able to experiment with different types of grain. They then spent the evening speaking and smoking together, Massasoit was eager to learn about the Old World, and he asked the pilgrims to inform the French they would no longer be allowed into his territory, since he was now King James's man. They stayed for a few more days, building friendly relationships, and they received a warm welcome when they made their way back to Plymouth. This was the first of several expeditions to neighbouring villages during this summer, as the pilgrims became versed in regional politics and their place within it. They would stay allied to Massasoit, and would be hostile to tribes who opposed him. The pilgrims quickly gained a reputation as a powerful force. Their guns, in particular, were very amazing to the natives. As the summer came to a close and we enter autumn, we have one last matter to address. I'm going to quote Bradford and then explain what he's talking about. Quote, They began now to gather in the small harvest they had, and to fit up their houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength, and had all things in good plenty. For, as some were thus employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing about cod and bass and other fish, of which they took good store, of which every family had their portion. All the summer there was no want, and now began to come in store of fowl, as winter approached, of which this place did abound when they came first, but afterwards decreased by degrees. And, besides waterfowl, there was great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, besides venison, etc. Besides, they had about a peck a week to a person, or, now since harvest, Indian corn to that proportion, which made many afterwards write so largely of their plenty here to their friends in England, which were not feigned, but true reports. End quote. What Bradford is describing here is the first thanksgiving. Plymouth now had along the street seven houses and for public buildings. There was a good first crop, the peas failed, but the Indian corn was bountiful, along with the natural wildlife. They had spent every day working since they landed, aside from Sundays, on which they worshipped, so they took advantage of the plenty to have their first real celebration. They captured enough food to last for a week, and sent an invitation out to Massasoit. They had three days of feasts. The pilgrims entertained the natives with military drills, well, they entertained the pilgrims with dancing. This is the origin of Thanksgiving. Sort of. The word doesn't appear until 1623, when there was decreed a day of Thanksgiving, and then it would take some time for the holiday to gain steam, It spent about 200 years as a tradition, celebrated only by the East Coast, but during the 19th century, it spread into the Gulf Coast and the Great Lake region, and over time became the national holiday we know and love today. That was where we were supposed to end episode 15, but as you know, I got a bit distracted and we ended up with an extra eight episodes out of it. Oh well. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can support it by signing up for membership at the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can also get in contact on social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and at History jamie on Twitter. You can also send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast, at gmail.com. Thus bringing to an end the last episode of 2015. It's been quite a year full of ups and downs, But it's ended with me three months into my career as a professional podcaster. That's certainly not where I thought I'd be at the beginning of the year, but I'm oh so happy that this is where I've ended up. Hopefully 2016 can be just as enjoyable as these last three months have been. So thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Have a happy new year.